And I thought I would talk a little about um, intensive retreat practice. How many people have done a retreat of oh, two weeks or longer? Let me just see. Okay, just a few people. Okay, so this would be appropriate. Um, how many people have done a, a retreat of a week or longer? Okay. Uh-huh. Um, intensive retreat is um, it's an important part of practice at some point. That if you're interested in the Dharma, if you're interested in practice, if you're interested in seeing where does the practice go, it can be very helpful at some point to do a long retreat. Long meaning, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, three months, six months. <laughs> Whatever, you know, see where you start, see where you're drawn, but at least a week and then a little more is helpful. And one of the reasons why it's helpful is because just the time length helps us let go of the world in a certain way. And it helps us let go of our usual engagements, our usual preoccupations, our usual responsibilities, not just for a short period, but for enough so we start to lose our cathexis or our attachment or our um, involvement with the world in, uh, to, to a greater degree than usual than if we just go on retreat for five days, let's say. Generally, I mean, and even that is great. I don't mean to at all diminish that. Great, go on retreat for five days. But at some point, it's very interesting to see what it's like to take a little longer period of time. And, you know, I have a, a rule of thumb when people ask me how my retreat was after... I go on retreat, I always tell them it was good. And I, I don't actually say much more than that. But um, um, one of the um, reasons it's good is because there's a kind of letting go of the world. There's a letting go of the world in a way where we get to let go of a whole identity of who we are. And so... Um, and with a longer retreat especially, we begin to see the permeability of identity itself just by, just by the fact that we've let go of our commitments and our roles and our responsibilities for whatever it is, two weeks or three weeks or a month. There's also, and especially for a longer retreat, let's say a month or two months or three months, um, what happens is you actually lose sight of the shore at some point. In other words, you know, when you go on a five-day retreat, it's like, okay, you get here and it's, there's a lot of energy and it's, you get here and, okay, and, you know, one, two days in and then you can see the end. You know, you can see the beginning, you can see the end. If it's a month or two months or three months, at a certain point, you don't see, you you forget about the beginning. And you forget about the end because they both get far away. You lose sight of the shore. It's like doing a long swim in the bay. Like if you swim Alcatraz, 
you know, at first you're by the island and the island looks really big and then you're swimming, swimming and slowly the island gets smaller and slowly you don't care about the island. And actually because of the way the, the uh, horizon works and the curve of the earth, you can't actually see where you're going in San Francisco, where you're actually swimming. You actually have to look at some of the high buildings to orient. But at a certain point, you're just there. You're just in the middle. And that's, that's the support. That's one of the benefits of a long retreat is you're just there, just like, because I, I swam Alcatraz one time and what was interesting was in the middle, all you could do is just stroke, 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 because nothing, because you, you know, you're, you're gone from Alcatraz and you can't, you can't really even see where you're going in San Francisco. All you can do is get into the stroke. And that's the benefit, same on retreat, is somewhere in the middle, it's like where you came from and where you're going are not important. What gets important is simply being here. And this even happens to some extent on a short retreat, but it's more, it's highlighted much more on a longer retreat. So the metaphor that I like to use for intensive practice is, is similar to travel. It's similar to going on a long trip to somewhere where we haven't been before. You know, that takes a lot of energy to pack up our lives. I, you know, I, um, I was watching my own experience packing up life, you know, putting everything together, doing all the last phone calls, the last emails, having to make sure all the little things were tied up. So I could just leave. And it's, it's similar to traveling. You have to finish everything. You have to get done with everything. You have to pack. You have to get ready. And then you go. And then the going, on a, and I'm thinking of a long trip. I do a number of long trips a year, a few, you know, at least 10 hours of uh, airplane travel. Um, one of the things that's characteristic is it's really exciting. It's really like a big deal. Okay, I'm going to Europe, or I'm going to Asia, or I'm going somewhere far away. I'm going to Africa, or wherever it might be. And, and then there's both an interesting combination of excitement and anxiety. It's not just, you know, even, this, even if it's like we know it's a great place, and it's still we know also that we're entering the unknown. We're going somewhere new. We're going to something new. And there's a part of us that is really excited about that. And then there's a part of us that's a little bit like, well, we don't know. And it's actually true. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen when we take a big trip, really. And we don't know what's going to happen when we go on a retreat. And this is true always. And then, so we take our flight, you know, we go to wherever it is, Amsterdam or, you know, Moscow, whatever, whatever, wherever we're going. And there's the getting there, and then there's the jet lag, inevitable jet lag. And it's the same on retreat. There's a very interesting period of time at the beginning of, this is true of every retreat, but I think especially on a long retreat, because we really know we're going to be there, there's a kind of jet lag the first few days. And people experience jet lag differently when we travel, but there are some commonalities that happen. 
There's a lot of tiredness can come on the first few days of a retreat. A lot of tired. It's like all the tiredness we never feel, all of a sudden we feel it. Or there can be a lot of sense of being uncomfortable in our bodies. And if you fly, if you actually travel, part of jet lag is the body rhythms are off and the body feels off and we can't get comfortable at times. Or we can't go to sleep when it's time to go to sleep or when it's time to be up, we're falling asleep. And it's, we're just not actually attuned to where we are. And in retreat, what happens is we make all this effort to get out of town, to get done, pack up our lives, to let go of our normal roles and ways of being. And then we get to retreat and it's actually like we've entered a different time space. Because retreat is like, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing to do. <laughs> I mean, all you're doing is doing intensive meditation practice, sitting and walking and sitting and walking. You get some instructions, you hear some talks. But really, it's like entering a whole different world and we're not used to it. It's really like changing a, t a whole frame of time reference. Um, and, and also the bareness of the retreat experience, which is set up to be bare, is something we're not used to. We're not used to actually being with ourselves in this immediate way, in the immediacy that meditation calls for. Meditation asks us to be with the direct experience, bodies, emotions, feelings, the mental processes, the reactions to things. It, it does it in an un, unmitigated way, in an un, um, unbandaged way. Un, uh, it's bare. Naked is the word that sometimes you do. A certain kind of naked awareness of actually what's happening, whatever that is. And we're not used to it. It takes, some, it takes going through some of the jet lag just to get used to the... Um, immediacy of reality. We're so used to be being buffeted by our thinking and our preoccupations and our planning and our doing and our and all the input. You know, coming back the last few days I've just watched all the input of you know, all of a sudden newspapers and, you know, email and then, you know, T V or just you know, just hearing about things. You know, when you're on retreat, you don't hear. All you hear is the Dharma. I didn't hear anything, any news for a month, anything about, and I didn't know any, any of the world. Who knows what's happening in the world on retreat? And if, if you go for a year, it's the same thing. You don't know anything. And what happens after a year, you see, come back, you see, oh, it's all the same stuff. It's still, it's, it actually doesn't change much. You know, the players change a little or the figures change a bit. But actually the, the stress or difficulty or um, uh, suffering of the world goes on. It's part of human life. So getting, get part of the art of retreat is especially learning how to relax with those first few days. And really, these first few days happen on a short retreat or a long retreat. I think they're a little more pronounced on the long retreat because the psyche knows how long you're going to be there. And then, and there's also 
something that happens because like travel, we know we're going to be changed by what's, hap- what's going to happen. If, if you go on a trip to somewhere new, if you go, decide to go to Japan for two months, or, you know you'll be changed. If you decide you're going to go to China and you know, tour or visit and be somewhere and do things, you'll be changed by the experience. And it's the same on a meditation retreat, especially a long retreat. That it's a certain kind of travel, a certain kind of adventure to begin to explore our world in this way through the process of meditation, through the process of what's sometimes called in contemplative culture seclusion. That we seclude ourselves from the conventional, the normal world in order to learn about an inner world in order to learn about the world of the human being, not from the outside, but from the inside. One of my friends, a teacher, a former monk, he, he's a twin, and he was telling me a story one day about his brother, twin brother, who was a member of the Explorers Club, uh, which was having its 100th anniversary party at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And his brother had been an explorer who traveled all over the, the world um, and, you know, done wonderful work and, and uh, learned about a lot about the, the earth and the world and the wildlife, etc., etc. And he, he had been invited to the, he was a member of the Explorers Club and he, he was going to the party. He said one of the highlights of the party was Sir Edmund Hillary, the first Westerner to go to the top of uh, Mount Everest it came into the ballroom at the Waldorf Astoria on top of a white stallion you know it was like you know this was black tie and you know very chic we could say and my friend was saying they were saying well why didn't they invite me I've done the inner exploration in the family I was the inner explorer and one way one could think about a uh, retreat and long retreat is a real sense of adventure and exploration into the human heart and mind and body, really, to see what is this, to answer the fundamental meditative question, what is this? What is this experience of being a human being? What is it really? What is it, not as an idea or in an abstraction, but in its immediacy, in the vivid uh, uh, and exquisite uh, immediate now. So, entering long retreat also has certain practicalities like traveling to another country. One is exposed to new customs, new ways, new language. And one has to begin to attune to where one is at. Even the movement on retreat. It's like if you go to certain cultures, they move differently than we do here in, let's say, America. 
and just in general, I mean, I've been going to Europe the last few years teaching. Actually, people move slower than we do here. Life has a slower pace. If you go to a restaurant for dinner, you sit there for the whole evening. That, that's just normal. Here, you know, the restaurant is like you get in and get out, basically, is what, what the movement. Or even the movement on the street, you know. Um, you know, here so much of the movement takes place in cars. In, in Amsterdam, 40% of the population travel primarily by bicycle. It's a whole different feel to the world then when the things are different like that. On a meditation retreat, the movement is slow. There's, there's no place to get. All you're doing is trying to get to the meditation hall or to the dining hall or to your room. That's, that's it. Or the, maybe the walking lane, you know, which is, you know, and, and it can get so slow, especially on a retreat. Like, and this is just more my way, but so I, I actually don't go to the meditation hall much. I sit in my room. And then because I don't want, even want to walk far, because I, I'm going pretty slow, then I just do my walking in the dorm, in the hallway in the dorm. So I only have to go 10 feet to my walking lane. And then I walk back, and, and then I go back and sit in my room. I have a cushion, I have a chair, and, and then practice gets, things get very simple. And so there's a simplicity in the, med- in the form of the meditation that we want to begin to harmonize with. And the simplicity is the support for beginning to look very deeply, to feel very deeply, to sense very deeply what are, what, what's here in a moment. What is a breath? Not as an abstract question. I'm using the concept to speak to you, but really in the immediacy of your experience, what do you actually experience? What does a breath feel like, taste like? What happens as we begin to let our consciousness, let our mindfulness begin to tune to the slowness and the simplicity of the retreat itself. The form and the practice become one in some sense. So the bareness, the simplicity, the quiet, the slowness are all really supports for that kind of um, um, those qualities to begin to come in our mindfulness itself. That the mindfulness can be very simple, direct, bare, clear. No, not a lot of movement. Just with what's here. Just with what's here. Just with what's here. Over and over again. And so we begin to not only learn hear the language of the Dharma, which we start to hear, words like Dharma or Sangha or you know, mindfulness or concentration, especially as it's used in the in the um, meditative in the contemplative culture, um, we start to understand these not just as concepts but as living realities uh, that we're, we're um, immersed in that we're immersed in mindfulness, we're immersed in concentration, we're immersed in a sense of um, learning what it is to... uh, Where is the suffering of a moment? Where is the freedom in any moment? We we can study this now experientially. We study this um, um, 
not as an abstraction, but in the living reality of being a human being. Of having a body, having a heart, having feelings, having a history, having a mind, having this possibility of awakening, of freedom. And we begin to recalibrate using the form of the retreat. And like, like I say, I like to sit in my room, but actually one of the great um, um, supports for practice is to simply follow the schedule of go, sitting and walking and sitting in the hall with people and then walking and sitting and walking and sitting and then going to the dining hall and then going back to walking and then sitting and then hearing the talk and actually letting the schedule support you so you don't have to think about what you're going to do. You hear a bell and either you're going to sit or you're going to walk or you're going to eat. That's it. And it's beautiful to come into, start to come into harmony, let the simplicity of the schedule give you an inner structure that will support the uh, um, opening of the heart and the clarity of mind that can come with meditation practice. And so there's new, new, and again, like travel, we start to learn the routines of wherever we go. We start to participate in the customs of whatever culture we happen to find ourselves. We start to learn the language and at least to say hello or how are you or, you know, we learn to get around now in the new culture. And like any travel, there's difficulties, right? We go thinking, oh, it's all going to be great. I'm going to go on a meditation retreat. It'll be great. <laughs> okay, well, it's good, good to let that go soon. I mean, it, w- it will be great, but it won't be great in the way we imagine. It will be great. Actually, it will. But part of what's great is that we begin to learn, we begin to develop the skills to deal with whatever comes. Whatever comes. And this, is, this happens traveling, right? Things happen, you know, you lose your suitcase. Or, you know, you get to some place and the, what you thought was going to be there is not there. And all of a sudden you have to start to improvise. All of a sudden, you, we start to find that we have new resources. Actually, partly we learn we need help, that we don't do it alone. This is true on a meditation retreat. We don't do it alone. There's interviews every other day. And, part, and really, the, the interviews are there with the teachers to help begin to um, both orient and then, in whatever way, offer support to work with what the difficulty, not just the difficulties, but especially the difficulties that come. And difficulties come. Difficulties are part of retreat. Why? Because difficulties are part of life. And so, all kinds of difficulties come. Emotional difficulties, physical difficulties. The mind won't do what we want it to do. I just want my mind to be quiet. Right? It happens sometimes. Sometimes it just chats you up endlessly. And you're like, God, I just wish it would shut up. Or it plays music. 
and not the best music. You know, you don't know what kind of music it's going to play. One of the part of part of contemplative etiquette, just so you know, part of is like if you're in a group interview and you're having a lot of music and you're asking how to work with it, you never say the name of the song. <laughs> don't do that, because otherwise then there'll be six people who will be hearing that song for the next day or two. I had a funny experience, which is. I, I've been working with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and who's a monk who lives in Southern California. So I, I've been at Spirit Rock. I've been calling him up every other day for my interview, you know. Which and, and he's very traditional, so they're short interviews, one to four minutes, you know, which is mostly okay. Hang in there, he says. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and but you know, when the time's right, he's actually very helpful, very skillful, and. Um, uh, but at one point he was doing a little traveling and he'd given me these different numbers and I was calling him where he was traveling and one day I was calling him in New York at the hotel and I called the hotel and they don't have him and, I'm, and it's the one day I really have some questions I really need to know something because something's happening in my process and I don't know whether to go with it or not go with it and he had not wanted me to go with something before but it was happening and I, so I'm, you know, I'm in yogi. This is yogi mind, right? It becomes really important. A little question like this becomes really important because there's nothing else you're thinking about, really. <laughs> and so I, so I called him, and and he had left a message saying, "I'm here at the hotel. I'm here under this name, his given name, and you know, I'll be here at this time." And I call, and they said, "No, we don't have anybody by that name. We don't even have that room number." Like. And I'm like, whoa, what? And then, so, then they put me on hold and, you know, there's some music playing while it's on hold. <laughs> and then you get back and I talk to the woman again and no, they don't have him. And I said, is maybe under Tanisaro? No, he's not there. And I said, well, he's a Buddhist monk, you know. And she said, well, we, you know, a lot of people here, we don't know everybody by face. <laughs> she said, and, uh, and then, and then, okay, so then I get off there and then I, so I thought, oh, well, I'll call the person where he'd been last two days ago. I call there and, and I call the person he was going to and I call there and I'm having, this is the most conversation I've had in like three weeks. And then, um, and then I call the monastery, they don't know where he is and, and then, and then I'd had it. I was a little fry. This was 20 minutes of talking on the phone. It was way too much for me. So I I let it go. Actually, I gave it to the manager. So I said, "Find Tanisaro Bhikkhu, please." And then I went, and then I went and I walked for a while just to kind of recalibrate. And then I went and sat, and I went and sat, and all this music came. I had no music, but that little two five minutes, whatever I was on hold, all this music came for the next twenty four hours. <laughs> You know, and then you just, and then you're mindful of that. And it's actually, and, the, and what's beautiful is, at first it's a problem, oh, I don't want this music, mindful of the reaction, mindful of the version. And then we start to see that it's not the music that's the problem. That it's me. I'm having the problem with the music. The music's not a problem. It's just sound. And then I start to be mindful of the sound. It's just sound or hearing. 
and then it's not a problem anymore. And this is what can happen at any point, in any difficulty. You know, emotions come, strong emotions come. Past comes, history comes, pain, grief, fear comes. They're not the problem. What's interesting is our capacity to have a variety of relationship with what's happening now. And sometimes we can hate it and be aversive to it or afraid of it or think it's bad. And the same experience, and this, with the same experience, it's not a problem. That tells us something. That's a very important insight to begin to see. As one of, our, one of my teachers once said, talking about relationships, he said, it's never the other person. We always think, oh, if the other person changes, then we'll be okay. It's the same with our inner experience. We think if the inner experience changes, then we'll be okay. But maybe our okayness is not based on our experience being a certain way. And the Buddha talked about this very, very clearly when he talked about freedom as uh, he, the metaphor he used, the, the, one of the ways he described freedom as the unconditioned. That freedom is not based on getting the conditions, whether they're outer or inner, getting those right, getting those perfect. Because we know we can't control any, the outer or the inner conditions. We can't control our bodies, our bodies aging. We can't control our hearts. We can't control our minds. But there is a capacity of heart and mind that is not necessarily bound by our thoughts or our feelings or our sensations. There is a freedom that's unconditioned. And so part of working with the difficulties is beginning to see the capacity that we have as a human being, the capacity for mindfulness, the capacity for kindness, the capacity for freedom. And so in this travel, in this journey, the inward journey, we will be changed we will be awakened. It's inevitable. If you do, if you take the journey, it's inevitable. You know, this form of practice is called insight meditation. This is Vipassana's insight meditation. And insights will come if you practice. And if you go on a five-day retreat, insights will come. If you go on a longer retreat, insights will come. And some of, the, some of the work in each retreat will be different. Each retreat is different. They're never the same. Some retreats are like going on an archaeological dig. Like all this stuff from the past comes. All this stuff. One of my friends was telling me about her experience on this retreat. And she said, she said, I couldn't believe there was this period where everything from the past came. Memories I didn't even remember. Memories I didn't even know I had in there came. People and places. 
And she was telling me this, and I remember one retreat where I was on a, a six-week retreat, and there was a period on this retreat where just my whole life, these memories of being small or being in school or being here or there and people and that I hadn't remembered since they happened just came. You, it makes you really wonder about memory and what's, where is it and what is that? Because because somewhere it's there. All of a sudden it, it appears as the mind quiets. All these memories are there. And some of the some of the movement on a retreat is what I call spelunking. I think that's the right word. Spelunking or spelunking. You go into some holes. You go into some dark places. It's true. Some pain, some grief, some difficulty. Maybe just not even knowing. There's periods where we don't even know who we are exactly. It's like everything we've taken ourselves to be, we see that it's a construct who we take ourselves to be, what we take ourselves to be. That it's based on ideas, on history, on the past. And it's, um, it's a little disorienting at times to begin to see with the freshness or the immediacy or the, uh, the nakedness of reality. That our identity that who we are truly is not based on any past, any history, any idea, any concept. That those are conventional, they're, they're important, they have their conventional import. But here we're looking a little bit below the convention, we're going down. We're beginning to see that reality is not simply the surface but there's a depth. And at that depth, a lot of our ideas, a lot of our beliefs, a lot of our views, a lot of our opinions fall away. That the living reality begins to show us something that's beyond our ideas. Um, Kalu Rinpoche, he said it this way. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you would discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And it's a reality that we, we intuit. We all, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some sense of the freedom or the possibility for the sublime to reveal itself. For our true nature to begin to show itself. The Buddha qualities, the wisdom, the compassion, the kindness, the understanding, the depth or maturity, we could say, of our humanity. Not simply the ideas or beliefs or introjects of society or parents or convention, 
but something more fundamental, something more that's the ground, we might call it the ground of being, or true nature, or Buddha nature, or as Kalu Rinpoche says, that there is a reality, you are that reality. Seeing the wisdom of seeing that we are nothing, and the wisdom of seeing that we are everything. And so in some way also, going on a long retreat, it's like scuba diving. Even snorkeling, you get a taste of it. You know, when you start to look under, below the surface, and see what's there. And, and actually, it's amazing to see below the surface, or to dive deeply below the surface. I saw I was I was snorkeling in Hawaii last year, and um, I was swimming actually with dolphins. It was really lovely. And at one point, though, I was just I was just on the surface, and I'm looking down. I'm looking down, and I see this big thing, and it's a big thing. It's on the bottom, you know, I don't know, 40 feet or something, 30 feet. I, who knows exactly? Maybe it's 20 feet. But I see this big thing, you know, kind of catches my eye. And I look and I look and it looks like this big square thing and I, and I think it looks like a car, actually. <laughs> you know, really, it looked like a car at the bottom of the ocean. You know, I'm from Detroit. It's my association. <laughs> and I see, and I'm, but I'm looking and I'm wondering, wow, how did a car get here? You know, this is my mind. Or I think this is... And then it like moves a little. I'm like... That's not a car. You're not in Detroit anymore. And I'm looking, and then it was a big manta ray. And it was just, and then it started moving, and I was like, wow, that is like, I think I want to keep moving away from it a little. And, and, um, and retreat is like that. All of a sudden things come, and at first, we might have a conventional association. We might think, oh, this is this, or this is that. And then things start to reveal themselves. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see what we are. It's beautiful to be in touch with reality at a certain level of reality. That's not, where we're not separate, we're not distant from it, we're not apart from it. It is us. And the truth is, it's already here, it's here right now. But generally, it gets occluded by our preoccupations and our ideas and our involvements and our busyness and the fact that we're not trained to be in the moment in a very full way or deep way. And so the, one of the possibilities of this, um, of a retreat and a long retreat is that all we're doing is being in each moment. And so, we start to slowly go deeper. We start to go down where the manta rays are. We start to see the life that's at the depth of life. The richness, the fullness. You know, what I started when I said, you know, I tell people the retreat was good. The other thing I say 
because I don't really know what to say about the retreat, but that it's blessed to have that kind of time. It's really blessed, even if it's difficult, it's blessed. I can't think of a greater gift that one could give oneself than taking that kind of time. At least, and really, even five days, and longer if you can at some point. Maybe, and you know, I, I, at one point I did a month of loving kindness meditation. And one of the instructions in the loving kindness practice is within the retreat form of sitting and walking and being quiet, the, the instruction is not to strive or stress or be tight, but to do whatever gladdens your heart. And I've often thought, I love that instruction. It's such a beautiful instruction. that I, My wish would be that everybody in the world has one month in which they do, in, in that kind, some kind of form like that, where they get to do whatever gladdens their heart. And isn't that a beautiful instruction to just think about what you would do if you're in a... It's not like you're going to go, you know, play baseball or go, you know, do anything. But within the sitting and walking and maybe taking some hikes in the beautiful land to do whatever gladdens your heart. If you want to lie in bed and practice, you do that. If you want to walk in the hills and practice, you do that. If you want to eat really slow, really slow, which is really fun to do. I, I'm, I'm really a good slow eater. I like the eating. 45 minutes for every meal. Bowl of food. Just really slow. Really to take your time. To be gracious with our life. To be gracious with our life. To let, it, to let ourselves be graced by life. And again, it's all kinds of things happen. All kinds of unforeseen things happen. We don't know what's going to happen. But it's a blessing to take that kind of time for ourselves to see what it is to be a human being. And then, of course, leaving a retreat is also like leaving, you know, if you've gone and stayed at a country for two or three months, it's actually hard to leave. It's like, oh, I'm here now and I've made new friends and I've learned new things and I'm part of this culture. And so leaving is hard. Even though we want it, it's like, oh, home sounds great, I, my own bed. Or, but it's also like, you know, it's hard to leave. And there's a certain art to the transition. And the longer the retreat, the more important the art of transition is. Sometimes we say that um, you can consider it'll be a half-life, the transition. So if you've been on retreat a month, it takes about two weeks to really recalibrate to being in the world. Or if it's three months, it'll take six weeks. Or if it's a year, it'll take six months. You know, and of course, these are generalizations, but it's good to think about it in those terms so that you're gracious with yourself as you leave. And part of one of the ways to be gracious, especially leaving a long retreat where you may have touched very deeply into reality and into freedom and etc., is to not try and hold on. That the overarching value, both in the retreat and leaving retreat, is to let go. 
and this is the overarching value of all of mindfulness practice, is actually to let go. To be present totally in the moment and then let go of it in the next moment. To be totally present in this moment and then let go of it when it leaves. Because then we come into harmony with the way things are. That reality expresses itself for a moment and then is gone. And then this moment is here. And so the mindfulness practice and the retreat form begins to teach us how to live a human life. How to live a life that is in harmony with the way things are, with reality as it is, not with how we want it to be, expect it to be, think it should be, have been told it's going to be, but actually with the way things are. So if you've done some retreat and you're interested in a longer retreat, I hope this is encouraging. I hope you... you and one of the important uh, practical things is to schedule it generally a ways ahead so that you can really... Like what I try and do is put one long retreat on the calendar a year. And I, and I try to do it a year in advance so that I know it's there and then I can orient and do all the things needed so then when it's time I can go. Um, and now some people have more flexible schedules, flexible lives, and they can just decide to go, great. But many of us, it's not so easy. And also, given sometimes we have to accrue, accrue the time so we could leave. You know, and people often say, how can you do it? How, how can you make that happen? I, I can't do it given my life. I don't know how people make it happen. But I have seen when people want it to happen, it happens. You know, it's one of those things with the Dharma. If you really want it to happen, you'll find a way. So, and even a month of practice, or really, if, you've ever, if you ever get to do that, which I hope you do, it's quite an adventure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.